Good morning. It's a blessing to be here. We think of when a, a Christian is given the obligation, or should say opportunity, to share about the truth of God, the Spirit provides, whether it's for sermon or Bible study or in any any aspect for anyone that is a believer, He does that for us. And my wife and I were talking the other night about what the Lord was leading for this Sunday, and I, I shared some of the thoughts, and I could kind of hear a smile in the dark. So, well, sounds like you. <laughs> And some some study, and I feel prepare a, a Rembrandt image of fine detailed work of of an image that is that's painted upon, and people view and see. And some can present a Norman Rockwell story in a picture that's done well. And I study and prepare, and someone looks back and says, "Hmm, yeah, that's like something Pablo Picasso would come up with." <laughs> but may the may the Lord use perhaps abstract thoughts for His blessing and glory. I know that He will. Um, with the thoughts I have this morning, I was looking at the the inheritance of Jacob's sons and kind of approaching the, the gospel through the Old Testament in a way. I know Jacob is mentioned in Hebrews 11, the chapter of faith, not for his meeting with Esau or his striving with an angel, but for offering blessings to Ephraim and Manasseh. And there's a lot to the blessings that are given or prophetic words given over sons in the Old Testament. And you can find Jacob's family. You might have got a Christmas card from him, a, a neat picture of men all wearing slacks and hair combed neatly and looking sharp and dignified. And wait, that's that's the wrong one. That's not them. That's the do-goods down the street. Here, Genesis 49, we'll find Jacob's family. Ruffled hair, dirt on their faces. Dinah has a torn dress. Reuben's not even looking at the camera. And little Benjamin's running around the corner, just kind of a blur. This is This is the family of Jacob. Kind of a mess, but this is the family that God used to forge nations and to bring about a covenant with his people and to bring about opportunity for the whole world was this family. Let's look a little deeper in Genesis 49. We'll read through and, and examine and gain some lessons from each of these sons in their failures and in their strengths as well. It says, And Jacob called unto his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you that which shall befall you in the last days. Gather yourselves together and hear, ye sons of Jacob, and hearken unto Israel your father. Reuben, thou art my firstborn, my might, and the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity and the excellency of power. Unstable as water, thou shalt not excel, because thou wentest up to thy father's bed. Then defiledest thou it, he went up to my couch. Reuben, we find strength, we find might, Excellent dignity, excellent power. And when I think of Reuben, I think of Eliab, one of Jesse's sons. And as the sons of Jesse were passed before Samuel, he said, Surely, surely the Lord's anointed is before me. And here is the one that was born to carry out the, the blessing of the blessing given by Jacob, the priesthood, and the ruling authority, all in one package. Reuben, Reuben was born for that, but he lost it because he had no stability. Unstable is water. If anyone ever pours water out anywhere, it, it conforms to whatever is around it. It doesn't stand on its own. It doesn't have its own principles or godly principles. Whatever container you put it in, it will take that shape. And that's the way that Reuben, Reuben is. He was influenced by others around him. He was influenced by perhaps evil, not by godliness or righteousness. And Reuben fell from, from the place that he should have should have held. That's a lesson of woe that we can learn. We've been given inheritance in Christ. Stand for the stability through the Holy Spirit. 
Ecclesiastes 9.11 says, I returned and saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor to the battle to the wise, nor yet riches to men of understanding, nor favor yet to men of skill, but time and chance happeneth to them all. Reuben could have given great glory to God and to God's people and to the entire world, but without stability he chose time and chance instead. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not to thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy path. James warns about being tossed to and fro like a wave. That's the way Reuben was. And the tribe of Reuben never did excel. There was no prophet, no judge, no king of note known from the tribe of Reuben. They never did excel. They existed and lived, but they, they fell from a place that they could have held that God had a plan for them. So a man may have great opportunities and yet lose them. Uncontrolled passions, double standards, may make him very little who otherwise might have been very great. Scripture says, except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Let's move on to Simeon and Levi. Simeon and Levi are brethren. They're linked together here. Instruments of cruelty are in their habitations. O my soul, come not thou unto their secret, unto their assembly, mine honor. Be not thou united, for in their anger they slew a man, and their self-will they dig down a wall. Cursed be their anger, for it was fierce, and their wrath, for it was cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Again, chastisement is given here at the deathbed of Jacob. And we'll find throughout time there's, there's two responses from it, from Simeon and Levi. One responds one way, another responds another way. They're linked by the retaliatory action. Their sister Dinah, her honor was defrauded. And they took matters into their own hands. They took out an entire city. You might say they were kind of kind of bad dudes by doing that. But not really. It was a place of cowardice. They were given to anger. Anger controlled them. They didn't give their anger to the Lord. The Bible speaks of their fierce anger. Ephesians 4.26 challenges us to be thou angry and sin not. Is there a difference in godly anger and ungodly anger? There is. The difference is self-will. Self-will gets in the way of giving to God. The Lord says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Jacob says, in your self-will, you dig down a wall. Jacob also says earlier in Genesis that these two men caused him to stink among the land, among the inhabitants of the land because of their action, because of their retribution. We look at what they did and think perhaps they were justified. But you know, God has taken ugly situations and made beautiful things out of them. I halfway wonder if maybe the situation involving Dinah, perhaps God had something beautiful planned for that. And by men taking matters into their own hands, it was wrecked. It was destroyed as possible. The men of Shechem, as you know, the story goes, Simeon and Levi went to them, or they went to Simeon and Levi and the people of Israel, desiring to intermarry with, with Jacob's daughters. And they said, if you take upon yourselves our covenant, we will. And it was a lie when they did that. Part of it was the circumcision, which they obediently did. They had a heart that was willing to be obedient, and perhaps they could have received the word of truth. But it was used to trick them, to trick them into being destroyed. And because of that, there's judgment passed here. There's chastisement given. As Christians, often there's a parallel to this. Do we destroy those who seek truth with our words and our countenance? Do we look down on those that don't have the inheritance that we have instead of sharing the inheritance that we have? Even if situations might press upon us as being hard, do we use that against people 
or try to seek the opportunity to gain, to gain brothers who once were not, that could be in the future. Remember, God has taken ugly situations and made beautiful things from them. But Simeon and Levi did not give the Lord a chance. Jacob says, I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Now, Jacob and Israel are the same, same people, same person. Jacob is of the flesh. Israel was a spiritual inheritance given by God when he was redeemed from the sins that he had committed. But it says they will be scattered. And to Simeon, this became a curse. The tribe of Simeon started out when they left Egypt as the third largest tribe, and then they were brought down to the smallest. They lost a tremendous amount of people when they, when they wandered in the desert. Almost 63% of their tribe, they became very small. But to Levi, it became a blessing. Why? The tribe of Levi was faithful through the rebellion of the golden calf. And this serves to show that there is opportunity of reconciliation with God, just as it was for Levi. A man named Washington Irving stated, it lightens the stroke to draw near to him who handles the rod. Just like God desires to chastise us often like he did with Laodicea. The purpose of that is that we draw near to him. When we discipline children as parents, the purpose is not to beat sense into them, but to draw them closer to God or to truth, to draw them closer to our heart and to the heart of truth. Any form of correction is, is for that, is for protection, for relationship. Here Levi found that. If you look on a map of the tribes of Israel, you don't see Levi anywhere. He was not given land, but he was given priesthood. He gained a part of the three-part blessing. He gained the priesthood blessing that could have been part of Reuben's that Reuben lost. It was given to Levi. They served as priest. If we draw near to God in chastening, our suffering can be turned to a blessing. That's a Christian parallel that we have. Suffering can be become a blessing. This brings us to Judah. Judah was a natural leader. In verse 8, Judah, Thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise. Thy hand shall be in the neck of thine enemies. Thy father's children shall bow down before thee. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, thou art gone up. He stooped down. He couched as a lion. And as an old lion, who shall rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come. And unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Binding his foal under the vine, and his ass is cold under the choice vine, he washed his garments in wine, and his clothes in the blood of grapes. With Judah we find a man that was lacking in character. He first suggested getting rid of Joseph for profit. He didn't deal faithfully with Tamar, his daughter-in-law. But some point in time later in life, he went through a character change. We know this because before Joseph, when Joseph requested of Benjamin to be brought to Egypt as well, Judah knew the heartache that would cause his father because Joseph to his father was gone and Judah offered himself instead to stay in the place of Benjamin. Judah went through a character change. He went through conversion. One thing we can gain from Judah's life is it's never too late for repentance. As long as there's life, there's hope. And Judah found that. Mm -hmm. Judah didn't, didn't fade out like a Reuben or a Simeon. Judah found hope in the Lord. He didn't come early, but he came later, but he came. As long as there's life, it's never too late. Repentance is turning. Judah turned from evil to that that is good. And the natural place of Judah as a leader is fulfilled. In Judah's lineage, we find 
David and we find above all Christ. And I've looked at this and I've thought a lot about why why Judah? The primary example of all these children, if you look at the at the picture of them, the one that would stand out would be Joseph. Why was the lineage of Christ given to Judah? Sometimes I wonder if it's not so much Judah and Joseph as it might have to do with Rachel and Leah. God looks at at Leah's heartache. She wasn't beloved of of Jacob. She was just given. And God takes those that are hurt and broken and those that have the greatest of heartache among us and does great things through them and for them. Sometimes he blesses those who who feel lacking or hurt the most in their life. The lion of the tribe of Judah is how Jesus is referred to in Revelations 5, verse 5. Christ came from Judah, not Joseph. In verse 10, speaks about the scepter not departing from Judah until Shiloh comes. There's a Jewish man living today, named Jonathan Kahn, that is a Christian, and he knows a lot about Jewish history. And he has a writing speaking of the scepter of Judah. He says, He removed the scroll from the ark and read from the book of Genesis, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. This, he said, was a prophecy given by the patriarch Jacob to the tribe of Judah. What was Shiloh? I have no idea. Listen, said the teacher, to what the rabbis wrote in the book of Sanhedrin and the Talmud concerning Jacob's prophecy. What is Messiah's name? His name is Shiloh, for it is written until Shiloh comes. What are they saying? They're identifying Shiloh as Messiah, I said. So then the scepter won't depart from Judah until Messiah comes, but what is the scepter? A scepter is what a king holds. It denotes power, rule, dominion, and sovereignty. So the rabbis understood it this way. The power of dominion would not be removed from Judah or the Jewish people until the coming of Messiah. And the crux of that dominion, they said, was the power of life and death, the power to decide cases involving capital punishment. So then the Messiah would have to come before the power of life and death, capital punishment, was removed from Judah. Yes, and the rabbis went further. They actually identified the moment in time when it happened. They wrote that when the members of the Sanhedrin found themselves deprived of the right over life and death, they cried out, Woe to us, for the scepter has departed from Judah, and Messiah has not come. History records that they put on sackcloth and ash. They actually mourned because the scepter has gone out from Judah, and Messiah has not come. When did that take place? The book of Sanhedrin gives the answer. The scepter departed from Judah 40 years before the destruction of the temple. Thus, 40 years before the year A.D. 70. Therefore, according to the rabbis, the year the scepter departed from Judah and the year by which the Messiah had to come was A.D. 30. You realize what this means. Of all the years of Jewish history and all the years of human history, the book of the Sanhedrin itself marks the year by which the Messiah had to appear as A.D. 30. It's when the ministry of Christ began. One who would change the course of human history and be known throughout the earth as Messiah, Yeshua, Jesus of Nazareth. As they were wandering around, mourning and lamenting, woe to us for the scepter has gone out from Judah, but the Messiah has not come. Well, yes, he had. They did not recognize. An interesting thing to note of this is the Romans took it from them. And it was three years after this, thereabouts, that Christ was crucified. And had it been three or four years previous, they would have had the opportunity and the right to extend capital punishment to one of their own. But now they couldn't. That's why they had to go through Rome. That's why they had to go through Pilate. And they crucified the Shiloh, the Messiah, that took that scepter from them of life and death. 
Jesus says in Revelation 1.18, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. Praise the Lord that he has the keys of hell and of death. I don't want anyone else to hold those keys but Jesus of Nazareth. Jacob moves ahead here and skips the birth order. And I'll, I'll breeze through a couple of these. Zebulun, known as a haven for ships. He shall dwell at the haven of the sea. He shall be for an haven of ships, and his border shall be into Zion. Zebulun is found not much else known, but he literally settles the land between the Mediterranean Sea and in between the Sea of Galilee. He looks to the sea, both to the east and to the west, and he is faithful to David's army in the time of David's trouble. They give many soldiers to the cause of David. Issachar. Issachar, we find, is a strong ass couching between two burdens. And he saw that rest was good in the land that it was pleasant, and he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant unto tribute. Issachar is given much, but he doesn't strive for it. He doesn't have to labor very hard for it. And this is a literal thing that happened to the tribe of Issachar. They're given a goodly land, but they kind of put their feet up and rest. The Bible says they, they rest. And because of that, they are overrun often by other people groups and they become a servant and pay tribute to others. This can parallel to our Christian life in a very harsh way. Here we find Laodicea, as was shared in the opening. Lukewarmness. You know, I go to church because, well, my dad did, mom did, and my grandpa did, and they have some stuff, that structure that was set up there, and it's, it's good. We find some stability there, and we have friends and fellowship there. We might have a goodly heritage, but it doesn't mean anything. And it's often shared in business with family businesses that oftentimes the first generation will establish a business, the second generation will live off of it, and third or fourth on down the line will eventually blow it, the money that, the gener the money that is earned from it. And that can be very true. We can find a second generation approach to Christianity in our heart and in our life where we just kind of live off what's around us. How do we get away from that? Well, that is broken by the Holy Spirit. Scripture talks about man earning his keep by the sweat of his brow. And we don't earn our salvation. It's given to us by Christ. It's a gift that we are blessed with, a gift given by Christ. But we obtain the Holy Spirit, and that same Holy Spirit of Christ that was in the Garden of Gethsemane, whose sweat became as great drops of blood, the work of the cross that was wrought out, that zeal of that Spirit is the Holy Spirit that can be alive right here in our heart. And if we're living for religion apart from relationship, we are in the place of Issachar, and we are easily given to other masters. Other masters can take control of us because we're not living by the Spirit. God wants his people to live by the Spirit, and relationship may have its a religion may have its purpose founded upon the relationship of Christ. There's a necessity for relationship with Christ and the Holy Spirit in our life. We find that zeal for godliness. His mercies are new every morning. We find that with Christ, with his spirit. Don't be an Issachar. Obtain the zeal of the Holy Spirit in our life each and every day. Dan, Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. This is where Samson came from, the big strong man, one of the great judges. But Dan shall be a servant, by the way, and adder in the path that biteth the horse heels, so that his rider shall fall backward. I waited for thy salvation, O Lord. That's almost as a warning interjected there for Dan to wait for the salvation of the Lord to honor God. But Dan, Dan throughout time does not. Dan introduces idolatry to the Israelites. 
That's the way of an adder or a snake that bites the heels of the horse and causes the rider to fall backward. The challenge of Dan and the the to us is to not to not cause offense to the brethren, just as Dan did to the Israelite people. Dan is left out. Revelation speaks of 144,000, 12,000 of each tribe and everybody but Dan. And we find they get to 144,000 because there's two from Joseph, his sons Ephraim and Manasseh take the place of Dan. Dan is left out. But Ezekiel speaks of a roll call of tribes in the time of the millennium and, and then Dan is mentioned first. That shows that God's redemption is there and open for those who are, who are lost in sin. His redemption is still there and still stands. Gad, a troop, shall overcome him, but he shall overcome at the last. Revelation encourages those to overcome. He that overcometh, there's blessings in the, in the letters to the churches. Because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold, but he shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. Gad speaks of endurance. We cannot be, we do not need to be consumed by enemies or by spiritual woes around us. But endure to the end, and Christ has the say at the end of end of time. Out of Asher his bread shall be fat, and he shall yield royal dainties. We think of bread shall make fat, we think of the word of truth. Royal dainties, the word of, of Christ makes us royalty. It gives us a royal inheritance, as was shared earlier. John 6, 5 says, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread which I give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. Naphtali. There's a lot with Naphtali that jumped out at me as I studied through these these men and their life. Open your songbook and the red book to number 162. 162. Naphtali, it says, A hind let loose. Remember as a young man... We had cattle get out once. They escaped through a draw, low place in the fence, and got into the neighbor's bean field. We're causing them a mess. We had to round them up and bring them back in. We did, and it was late spring, early summer. It was hot. I was walking through tall grass, and just like that, I almost stepped on a on a fawn, baby deer. It jumped out, and I, I thought it could have been a landmine for a split second. It made me jump. That little dude took off fast. As a hind let loose, Naphtali, and goodly words. What does this mean? You know what region Naphtali settled? It was a region right around Galilee, the Sea of Galilee. A hind let loose. All the oppression that the Israelites went through, all the oppression that you and I can go through through the bondage of sin, there appears Christ at the Sea of Galilee. The ministry of Christ, the goodly words, the energy as a hind set loose that takes off through the world. You can take a globe and set it in front of you and take a pen. Draw a little line on there and that's Israel. It's not very big. Take a pen prick and point it, a little dot there, and there's Galilee. A small spot on that line where the ministry of Christ started and pretty much the bulk of it was just right there. And there's where the hind set loose, the energy that it began to, to go, I believe. is kind of what's referred to. The words of Christ, the goodly words that are shared there. They're at Galilee. I thought about how when the law was given and Moses had to climb the mountain of Mount Sinai and the whole of the people were down below and the mountain, when you think of a mountain, 
you think of something that's hard and cold, the top of a mountain is cold and it's hard to climb. It's hard to get there. As Moses was called to go up to God and meet God there and the top thundered and shook, Joshua went with him a little ways, but he stopped at the base because it was told, you touch this mountain and you're not Moses, you die at this time. You will perish at the base. So great was what was going on here. And the people didn't even uphold the law before they received it. They, they turned aside. They looked at where Moses went and said, he's not coming back. Let's fashion a, you know, a calf, a false god. Egypt did that and they were a great nation. We can do that too. We'll serve this God and all the idolatry that goes with it. They broke the law before they received it and Moses had to go back. But I think when Moses went up that mountain, I think he slipped a few times along the way and he probably got to this peak with scraped up shins. I just imagine it as being that way. It wasn't just a real easy task. And if anyone else would have touched it, they would have died. Contrast that to a town near Galilee, the time of Christ. And there's a woman through the crowd trying to get to Jesus quietly. If she could just, just touch, touch him. Now you couldn't touch the mountain when the law was given, but if she could just touch his garment. And she does, and Christ stops and turns. And oh no, the shock that would have went through her. I tugged too hard. No, Jesus, don't look at me as she falls to her face, mouth full of dust and a wail. Don't look at me. She has the issue of blood, disease, sickly. And the words of Christ are beautiful words to her. She's healed. Your faith has made you whole. Many of the miracles happen nearby Galilee. The Sermon on the Mount was just a grassy knoll that overlooked Galilee. Jesus gets in a boat and sets out a little way because the crowd presses on at Galilee. I think of Sinai as a cold, hard rock. I think of Galilee. I think of blue water, blue sky, warm breeze, soft sand, soft hearts willing to receive the word of God. A contrast. Both are necessary. The law is necessary. You build foundations out of rock and something solid and firm, and the complete work of Christ doesn't abolish the law, it fulfills it. But when God came on down to man, we think of the distance between sea level and a mountaintop, and to God it's not that much, but to man it's a great deal. If we go from here to the mission at Torion, and you try to walk around, you're going to get out of breath because you're not used to the altitude change. When man went up to God on the hard surface, and the, and the cold hard truth of the law, then when God came down to man at the Sea of Galilee, just the difference of the setting, the difference that was there. In fancy I stood by the shore one day Of the beautiful murmuring sea I saw the great crowds as they thronged the way Of the stranger of Galilee I saw how the man who was blind from birth in a moment was made to see. The lame was made whole by the matchless skill of the stranger of Galilee. And I felt I could love him forever, so gracious and tender was he. I claimed him that day as my Savior, the stranger of Galilee. The look of compassion and words of love, the warmth of that place in Galilee, the goodly words. We think of Naphtali. I think of that scene. 
So what's the difference? What's the difference in Reuben and Joseph, Simeon, Levi? The difference is response of the Lord to the Lord. The difference in our life can be the response to the Lord as well. You and I are Reuben or Joseph or Levi or Simeon, Simeon, either one. The defining factor is our response to the Holy Spirit of God calling upon our heart. That's what we see here. God desired to use each one of these young men. He really did. He had a place and a purpose for all. The man at the top, that should have been at the top, fell, and his his was given and divided among others. So God will fulfill his purpose in some way. But don't let it pass you by. Don't let the opportunity to serve the Lord in your life pass you by. You that are young here, younger ones among you, think of the life of Joseph and the impact that he had the entirety of his life. He came to the Lord early. That was a blessing. He had a lot to serve God. A poet once wrote, The candle burns at both ends. It will not last the night. But all my friends and all my foes, it gives a lovely light. That's the way our life is. When you're young, you think you've got a long time ahead of you, but it burns down pretty fast. And the older you get, the more you see that. Years fleet on by. And if you delay your service to the Lord in your life until the latter end, one once said it's kind of like burning the candle down of your life for self and sin and then blowing the ashes and the smoke in God's face, saying here's what's left. Joseph didn't do that. Joseph gave his life in entirety, and he has high regard and high high place for God's work here on this earth and, and probably in heaven as well. Judah came later, and that's fine. Those who come at the 11th hour shall be saved, and God has a purpose and place for them. God used Judah's life too. But come early if the opportunity is given. Don't delay the work of call, or the calling of God in your life. When you think of Joseph's life, there's a lot of parallels to, to Christ. When we give our life early to him, we find we find that. We can be a fruitful bow, even as a fruitful bow by a well, whose branches run over the wall. I'd like to read Psalm 1, too. It's short. Psalm 1, when you think about Joseph, it says, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. Fruitful bowl. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knoweth the way of righteous of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. The parallels of Joseph and Christ. Their father loved them dearly. They were shepherds of their father's sheep. They were sent by their father to their brothers. They were hated by brothers. Others plotted to harm them. They were both tempted, both taken to Egypt. Tunics were taken from them. They were sold for the price of a slave. They were taken prisoner, falsely accused, placed with two prisoners. One was saved, the other was lost. Both were 30 years old at the beginning of public recognition. Both exalted after suffering. They forgave those who wronged them. They saved their nation. What men did to hurt them, God turned to good. The character of Joseph, because he came early, he came young to Christ, to, to truth. And Joseph had this much truth. We have this much truth. We have this much bread of Asher. Joseph came on just knowing God. How can I sin against God and do this thing? And that, that saved him so much. Reuben didn't say that. And Reuben lost out <clears throat> we read of Benjamin and it says he shall raven as a wolf 
In the morning you shall devour the prey, and at night you shall divide the spoil. There's not much to that, but we find zeal with Benjamin. The Apostle Paul was was of the Benjaminites. And we know as Saul before, he persecuted the church fiercely, and then he served the church fiercely. And we think of, often we view the church as being full of nice people. God wants some fierce people to serve him. He wants us to serve him fiercely, earnestly, with zeal. We find that zeal in Christ. We encourage you to find the blessings found of, of Jacob, of Joseph, of Judah, Asher, Naphtali, the word, the beautiful words of God, so concentrated on the earth and spread out by the Spirit, and we're a part of that today, that Spirit of Christ that's within us to share the word of truth. Last verse. Come ye who are driven and tempest-tossed and His gracious salvation see. He'll quiet life's storms with His peace be still. The stranger of Galilee. He bids me to go and the story tell. Whatever to you will be. If only you let him with you abide. The stranger of Galilee. Oh, my friend, won't you love him forever? So gracious and tender was he. Accept him today as your Savior, the stranger of Galilee. The stranger can be your friend, your close confidant. Trust him. Use this Picasso for God's glory. Let's come before him in a time of prayer.